Well, we're absolutely honored to have Dr. Sven Kurlin here with us today. Sven Kurlin grew up in Croatia during the Croatian War of Independence. He started with $500 at the age of 16 and raised additional savings through diving for bubble worms, which he sold to fishermen. A true value investor at heart, he invested in depressed stocks during 2000 to 2005, subsequently selling when prices rose in 2006 to 2007. In 2010, Sven Kurlin began his PhD with a focus on creating a real value risk estimation model. Sven Kurlin was also previously an assistant finance professor at the University of Applied Sciences of Amsterdam. Today, Sven Kurlin analyzes hundreds of stocks on his phenomenal stock market research platform and leading YouTube channel. He's also incredibly generous, donating all of the proceeds from the YouTube ads on his channel to charity. Sven Kurlin is also the author of Modern Value Investing, one of the very best books on investing. The book provides readers with 25 phenomenal tools for great value investing. Dr. Kurlin, whenever you're ready, uh, feel free to share your presentation and we can begin. All right. Thank you, Itai. I am uh, very thankful for this invitation. I am honored to be the first speaker in the series. So um, I have prepared a little presentation and uh, I'll try to just touch on the key points of value investing to a little bit, create a discussion, and then we can later go to Q&A, which I'm so sure you will enjoy. So let's start immediately with the presentation and then we can discuss later as Itai already said. So I have done a PhD on risk modeling. So how to analyze risk when it comes to investing. And again, my findings were all about value investing, how it is about value first, which is then a factor that analyzes the values your risk. Later, I become a professor. I was a researcher for Bloomberg. But the key for me is that I have been investing since 2002, which means A, that I am old because I've been doing this for 20 years, but also that I have seen a lot of ups and downs in the market, which are exactly what I want to discuss. Just a fun fact, as Itai said, uh, I was a professor. As you know, professors have the summer free, not you in this case, because Itai told me that you have a summer semester, but usually we professors had summers free. I started to write a little bit of articles online. Then I started to try to turn those articles into YouTube. And three years later, I now have a YouTube channel with, I think, 170,000 subscribers. So that's what I do a little bit of YouTube, a few videos a week, but the core of what I do is actually stock market research. I have a research platform where I dig into the sectors, deep dives into the stocks. And I'll just give you an example of how this looks like. So this is what I did over the past weeks. I started to look at every stock traded on the Dutch stock market Amsterdam Stock Exchange, and uh, I simply look at each one. I write a shorter article about those that I'm not really interested in, and a longer one or even a video about those that I am a little bit more interested. But as I go through every stock listed, 
When you look at one stock, you read the annual report, you learn more about something else, the sector, the business, how it works, and then you always get these light bulbs that go on in your head just by doing research and finding good investments. So this would be what I do. Also, there is a comprehensive stock market investing course that is free for everybody. You can enroll where I try to structure my videos so feel free to do that later when we finish the presentation, of course, if you enjoy the presentation. Now, this presentation, I wanted to compare value investing with everything else that's going on in the world of investing. investing when I was in, I had a very simple goal was to just get to a million in my currency then, which would then be enough, and simply get the 5 to 7% dividend yield and be financially free. So that was my goal. And then I started looking, okay, how am I going to get that? Focus on income, make money, invest that money in good businesses that have a good dividend. And that's about it. Very, very simple. However, if you look at the rest of the world, this is a presentation for JP Morgan. It's the JP Morgan Guide to the Markets, beautiful charts. Over the last 20 years, the average investor did on average 2.9% per year. Compare that to the market that did 7.5%. That's a crazy difference. And in this video, I really want to discuss, okay, why is that so? Why does the average investor perform that badly compared to the market and compared to value investors like Seth Klarman or... Monish Pabrai that you later have on this series that destroyed, that are here off the charts. What is the difference? And I really think that the difference is investing, buying a business for the dividend yield, for the business, for the earnings versus looking at where is this stock going? Am I going to invest in stocks now because those are going to go up? That's gambling. Or am I going to invest now in the S&P 500 because I really enjoy the 1.5% dividend that it offers me? If I don't like the dividend, then I look for some better options. And that's the comparison between investing and I call it gambling or speculating with stocks. So if you want to do better than the average, you have to focus on things that have value, look at returns, and look at owning businesses. I've just summarized it quickly. How does it look like? What's the difference? If you want financial freedom, if you're a value investor, you look at the business. If you want to gamble, you look at stock prices going up and down all the time. You look at income, you look at your wealth, you have a million compared to, I have this money I can gamble in. Also, you try to invest into something where you get as much value as possible or like Beyond Meat will go up because it's now a hot meme stock or something else. Value investors, we always look for a margin of safety. Other people have, you live only one strategy and then invest in who knows what. The difference is, let's say that you made 10 times your money on Tesla or on Bitcoin or something like that. And then the question is, what after that? You put it into something else 
that has the probability to decline 90%. So what you made, you lost in the next step, which doesn't allow for compounding, which is the most powerful uh, powerful tool or let's say physical rule or investing rule law that leads you from the point where you are now, A, to your long-term financial goals, which should be, let's say, higher, higher, and higher, especially if you can get good returns. And this is from the government compounding uh, calculator. And you can see the difference. If you start with 10,000 and add 500 per month over 30 years, if you do 10%, you end up with 1.1 million. If you do 2.5, which is the average what people do, is 284. If you do 17%, it's 5.5 million. So I think it's really worth to focus on compounding over 30 years. But if you want to compound over the long term, then you must not take gambles. That's the key. And that's also the key with investors. Okay, if you want to combine, compound in 5 6%, the stock market, the S&P 500 is a great tool for that. At current prices, we are looking at 5% long-term returns likely. Not bad, but you must not sell in panic, which is again a difference that most people do. When you see the market going down, people want to sell. Instead, we value investors. We like to buy more of the good at a discount. So this is a key difference that I see and the key difference why we see those differences in returns. These differences in returns, which are simply insane over the long term. So to conclude a little bit, I want to do a quick comparison of Beyond Meat and Verizon. So, the driver of investment returns are the business and the underlying health and profitability of the business. That's step one. So beyond meat, I just researched it because I'm looking into the food industry a little bit as a sector. And the market capitalization is 9 billion compared to sales of 400 million. So that's 21 times sales. What has to happen with beyond meat so that you get the dividend? from it. It has to grow sales 15 times and then have a profit margin and then from that pay a dividend. So that's a very, very long shot. And of course, the market cap is 8.5 now because it's a meme stock, likely 10 billion as we speak. So it's really, really volatile and crazy because it's more gambling than investing. I have made a valuation, so uh, put revenues in a model. Uh, I think, Itai, I will send you this uh, template so you can play around with the valuation and see how different growth rates, how different terminal multiples on revenues impact the current value, intrinsic value. And if things go bad, then the present value is just 1 billion compared to the 9 billion. Uh, current valuation. So there is potential for 90% decline here. And as a value investor, you'd never take that gamble. 
So as we said, sales need to go to 10 billion with a 5% profit margin. And then maybe in 2030, you'll get a 2.5% dividend yield for, let's say, compounding. Compared to what Warren Buffett just bought and has been adding, let's say, a company like Verizon, you probably know it, the dividend yield is already now 4.46%. They are investing, they have a lot of debt, so that has to be balanced in the analysis. But still, when you look at a company like Verizon, will it be there 10 years down the road? It's very likely. How many competitors are there to Verizon? So it's an oligopoly. Unlikely that there will be a new competitor. When I analyzed Beyond Meat, I looked at the shelf there. There was a private label at 50% of the price. So there is a lot of competition. There is no moat. Verizon just paid $45 billion for a Spectrum uh, bid, which creates a moat over time. So it is up to you to really search for the best businesses that will lead you to your financial goals. But the key is that you don't take, take gambles, no matter how exciting that might be to bet that Beyond Meat will become mainstream, for example. And then another step is when it comes to investing, is value investing is risk. <clears throat> you have probably learned this in your uh, classes that the higher is the risk, the higher is the return, the efficient frontier, modern portfolio theory. But the difference with value investing is that risk there is measured by the standard deviation of annual returns. Value investing is completely different Risk is the possibility of permanent capital loss or actually bad returns. And this is very interesting. So the S&P 500 was at almost 1,500 points in 2007. Then two years later, it was at 50% of that. And then people looked at the standard deviation and looked at stocks going down and they said, this is risky. But you tell me when it is more risky. If you pay 800 for something or if you pay double for something. We value investors find this very low risk with high return. And you have seen over the last decade what happened to the returns. And really, I want to conclude here by giving you an opinion on owning businesses. This is a hotel in Venice. And just imagine that somebody gifts you this hotel. Would you be looking at the price of the hotel going up and down every day? Or would you be thinking about, okay, how can I increase occupancy in October, November, which are still good weather in Venice, but a little bit slower months? And that's the mindset that, let's say, makes the difference between value invest owning businesses and everything else that's going now around in the stock market. So I think I have summarized a little bit what value investing is and uh, I can stop sharing my screen. And I just wanted to share with you the last book I read, which is 100 to 1. And you're all 
young. And I really wanted to recommend you this book because it was written in 1972. Really this book, because if you go to read it now, you will see that nothing has changed in the world. You may think we are living in crazy times, but Thomas Phelps, 100 to 1 in the stock market, read it and it will explain also what's going on now. So uh, I hope I have given you a little bit of an overview of what I do, how I look at businesses, at investing and compounding. And I'm happy to go to Q&A, which is always the most fun part. Yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Colin, for that. That's very helpful. And uh, thank you to everyone who submitted questions. We really appreciate it. And uh, absolutely, so let's get started with the Q&A. So our first question is, which metal and which non-metal commodity are you most bullish on today? Metal commodity? Uh, I think that's a good question. <laughs> that's straight, straight to the point. <laughs> um, I have seen, so I have been following copper really, really in detail over the last five years have good returns, sold a little bit too early because I didn't expect it to go that high. But I have analyzed every copper producer, all the increases in producing and the likely increases in demand. And I'm a little bit more bearish. Let's say, I would say too risky. Anything can happen. But at this level of 4.6, copper from a value investing perspective is too risky. I look at it again when it comes below three. If it doesn't come below three in the next three, four years, okay, there are some other things that I'll look at it. Then we have, say, more bullish and long. We have aluminum prices, alumina, and uh, still not exuberant, but there have been some changes. So there could be a balance because the sector was really under pressure over the last 10 years, which is still positive. And then it's not really about the sector or the commodity. It's about the business. You're looking at, when, you, when I say I'm bullish on copper, then I look at the whole sector, every copper miner. I look at the risks. Do I like a lot of debt? Do I like company with no debt? Do, does the company have a competitive advantage? So you always go bottom up as a value investor. And yeah. no matter where we are in the cycle, you can always find opportunities. But of course, the lower the price is, the lower is the risk, the higher the margin of safety, and the higher the potential return. Absolutely. And with some markets today being, I don't know if necessarily overvalued, but let's say at least highly valued, like the US, what, where geographically do you see opportunities today? Um, it's all, let's say, about overvalued or fairly valued. It's all an interest rate game. Mm -hmm. So if you can borrow money at 1% or 0%, then stocks are, as Buffett says, ridiculously cheap also in the United States. So I would never go for, uh, let's say, a sector is cheap or not. As always, you look at bottom-up, and uh, then you look at businesses, businesses that you want to own. And especially, I have looked all around the world and I've started looking at um, emerging markets because everybody was saying that there has been value. But 
I don't speak the languages there. I don't speak Chinese. I can't read Chinese. And then I was thinking, okay, maybe I should focus better on the things I know. I speak every European language. I can read every European language. So why don't I focus on here? And then I started, as I have shown you there, with every company on a list. And from there, you see, okay, look at this company. It is expanding also in Asia. 20% of revenues are from Asia. And then you say, okay, that's an exposure to emerging markets. It's not priced by the market. I really like it. And then you also, by looking anywhere, you can find exposure. So it's always about bottom up and not really about the relative valuations on the market. So we had a lot of questions uh, discussing specifically the, the BRIC countries. And so would your advice be rather than, because there's a lot of different risks in those countries, either political risk or lack of regulation or et cetera. So would your advice be for investors to try and gain indirect exposure to those countries, usually rather than trying to go for a company that's directly in those countries? I am very, very invested in Russia okay. over, over the last two years because it was simply so cheap. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's something, of course, you have to balance and check and watch carefully and also time. But if you look at Monte Carlo, Monaco, and if you look at the biggest yachts there, only Russians own them. And they need <laughs> fat dividends to fuel them and pay for them. So that's also a value investing strategy. So my, my interests are aligned with their interests. So for now, everything is good. But you always have to think again. It's not just brick. So there are businesses in Brazil. There are businesses that benefit from the currency depreciation, benefit enormously because they sell in US dollars, but their costs are in Brazilian reals. And there are businesses that have the opposite. There are businesses that sell in Brazilian reals, but have US dollar denominated debt. Those are screwed. And you have to always, it's not just about the market. It's always, okay, what is the business? What are you talking? And then you see opportunities everywhere, depending on the situation. Yeah, that's really, really helpful. Thank you. And so we had some questions. There's been some interesting um, acquisitions recently in the media sector, uh, including the Warner Media Discovery merger, and then also Amazon's purchase of MGM Studios. So do you believe that there will be further significant consolidation within the sector? And what do you view, what do you view as, uh, let's say, what streaming platforms do you think will be the winners, both in terms of users and in terms of profitability? I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> really, it's not the sector that I follow. I have looked a little bit at AT&T with all the mergers and acquisitions there and uh, I'm typical value investing perspective. So you have an investment bank and investment banks makes money if they make the deal happen and get fat big fees, <laughs> fat big bonuses. And uh, then everybody who has to do something because Netflix is growing so fast or this, we're losing market share. Let's do something. We just call JP Morgan and JP Morgan will have a team 
of people delivering <laughs> a possible deal, making a lot of money. So my conclusion is with all those mumbo jumbo going on, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan will make and are making a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the perspective. Yeah. Uh, so As for the growth, the profitability, not my sector really, really. Yeah, no worries, no worries at all. Uh, so we had a lot of people that were very interested in your story with Amira Foods. And we're wondering if, let's say there's, again, this, this situation happened again today with a company that was similar to Amira Foods. Would there be anything, let's say, in the company's financial statements or in the reports or anything of that sort before they had that huge write-off of inventory that could have signaled to you that maybe actually, it was a red flag? Actually, that was... Uh... Uh, one of the first stocks that I covered on my YouTube channel and uh, covered it publicly and everything. And uh, before they announced the write-off, about eight months before that, I said, if in this earnings call, the cash doesn't, they, doesn't go up, then it's a fraud. And I made a video, I think I sold all my stocks and in 15 minutes, I made a video said how rice prices went up, their cash didn't go up, which means they don't have the inventory. And so I didn't lose, or I think my followers didn't lose any money. But what I would do differently now, it as at the first sign of, okay, this smells, I would avoid it. Okay. Because I can find better. Back then, it was, I think, 2017, I was still having a full-time job, this and that. So I didn't have the full-time dedication to research that I have now. And simply, as soon as there is risk that it is a fraud, I would uh, avoid it. My yeah, mistake, absolutely. it was absolutely my mistake that I even got into that, but uh, everything looked nice, the numbers looked nice and everything but i was fortunate enough to follow the cash always follow the cash and if the the dividends aren't there then it's likely a fraud which eventually also was yeah absolutely thank you for that insight and so a lot of people here have read your book and they really enjoyed it and uh in it you discuss seven types of modes you discuss one a low-cost provider two a high switching costs three, a network effect, four, a strong brand name, five, a great reputation, six, economies of scale, and seven, government protection. Although you can have several of these intertwined, do you know maybe which, which one of these do you think would be uh, the strongest and which one would be the weakest and easiest to sort of overtake? Uh, from a mode perspective, I think then again, it's very, if a government changes the law, then the business can really, if, if the government, for example, if we take Amazon now or Facebook, or if the government changes the regulation there at how it's structured and everything, which has happened a lot of times in the past where the government forces big companies Speaking of AT&T that was forced to spin off into seven, eight businesses by the government. So that's also something that can change. So again, it's always about the specific situations and 
how those specific situations can be affected. If you are a low-cost producer of something, if someone invents a new technology that goes below your cost, you are you have uh, lost. So it's always about following, reading, 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 as would Charlie Munger say. And then you, you sense, okay, this is becoming too risky. This is not becoming too risky. And that's how things evolve then uh, over time. But it's always about the specifics. Can't, can't, it's very difficult to put it in the general perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Can you give us sort of any insights, though, for, for sectors that, let's, let's take, for example, tobacco, oil, and natural gas, where you're investing in them from a long-term perspective, but they may face declining long-term trends, and they may face increased future regulation. I think we just had some recent um, lawsuits for, for oil companies that are pretty major as well, and some goals of reducing the amount of uh, tobacco and cigarettes in the U.S., so how do you take that into perspective when considering investing in those sectors? That's a really good question. But then you have to say, okay, how am, how are you, what's the value of that? Because if you buy something at the price earnings ratio of two, it's very different than <clears throat> comparing it to price earnings ratio of 1,000. For example, you have natural gas stocks that were trading at the price earnings ratio of two six months ago. and electrical vehicles that were trading at 1,000 or even more. And then, okay, worst case scenario, will this company still produce five years? If it produces five years at a price earnings ratio of two, then you'll get twice your money in five years, which is an okay return. So you always balance price and the actual situation. So then you have... A difference has to be made with oil, natural gas, and how are the trends there. Uh, I've read somewhere that, for example, coal, that nobody wants to talk about now. Actually, the coal-powered electrical power plants, the number has been increasing because Pakistan, Uzbekistan, and things like that have been building up and ramping up new coal power plants. So it's a big world and you have to balance those inputs into a supply, into the demand supply model that goes into a balanced price. And then you see how that price evolves over time. And time is the key component. Okay, when it's going to happen, what's the risk I'm taking? And the risk is always a factor of price. If you can get it really cheap, then it's low risk, no matter what happens. If it's a terrible environment, okay, I'll get my 5% dividend yield and that's it. If it's good, I will double my money triple in five years. So it's always about balancing, okay, what's going on, when it's going on, and then the price of the risk you are taking. Yeah, absolutely. And then what are your thoughts about uh, let's talk a little bit about the jurisdictional risk for miners and sort of um, Thomas Kaplan sees it as sort of moving to a lot of countries, either just taking back their mines, a lot of third world countries or a lot of third world or second world countries uh, really ramping up the taxes on mining commodities there. 
So, so what are your views today on, on investing in miners with jurisdictional risk because they're in countries that are either third world or second world, let's say? Okay. So let's start with the jurisdictions with the biggest risk, U.S. and Canada. <laughs> so the United States are printing dollars. They have about what is the budget deficit I don't know. Will, will it be 50% this year or something I so, like yeah, that? I think it's around there, yeah. yeah. So something like that. So what does it mean for the future? Higher taxes. So that's practically isn't a risk. That is a certainty that there will be higher taxes also for miners. So, of course, this is US. You know it will be announced. It's okay. It's the Wild West if you go to the Democratic Republic of Congo, where I think two years ago they said they will increase taxes. And usually when they did that, they would say, okay, for 10 years we are not going to increase. And now have, they have abolished even that. So you invest, you put a billion into something, and the next day they say, okay, thank you for the billion. We push up taxes. So <laughs> it's... It's a really, really cr crazy, crazy environment. But then again, because it's so crazy, because it's so complicated with, uh, with labor strikes in uh, South America, with issues in Africa where governments change their mind in five minutes, with environmental issues in Europe for mining, etc., etc. And then it's with higher possible taxes in the US or Canada. And it's really, really a crazy field to invest in. But then again, you look at, okay, what's going on and uh, the businesses and you see that, okay, if let's say production in Chile is much, much lower, what happens to the price? The price goes higher. I've had I've been looking at a Russian company that produces aluminum and they were sanctioned. You are not allowed to produce, you're not allowed to sell to the US. And their sales went down 15%. The price of aluminum in 2018, because of that, went up 15%. So for them, it wasn't a big difference from that perspective. So again, anything can happen and uh Maybe we'll have now environmental taxes for these miners. But then again, you have to ask, if they put taxes on them, supply and demand, who will pay? Will those taxes go to the consumer, et cetera, et cetera? So it's a very interesting field with a lot of moving factors. But again, hard to say in general. You always need to look at the specific one and then when you follow the company, you see, okay, what's evolving there? What's going on? And of course, if the risk becomes too higher, you sell and you say, uh, thank you very much. Very interesting field with a lot of moving factors. But again, hard to say in general, you always need to look at the specific one. And then when you follow the company, you see, okay, what's evolving there? What's going on? And of course, if the risk becomes too higher, you sell and you say, uh, thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. <coughs> that makes sense. Um, what do you feel? We had a lot of questions about Russian stocks because the Russian market looks very cheap. 
Uh, would you feel comfortable sharing with us some of, let's say, the opportunities that you're very bullish on in Russia? Uh, I was bullish in Russia last year. So uh, the last time I think I bought Gazprom, for example, in October. So now it has doubled or something like that. So that was really, really uh, good. But now I have to slowly start looking at, okay, this is the return. What is the business? And uh, there was always, Gazprom was, for example, cheap for a political reason, because what if Trump especially prohibits the construction of Nord Stream 2? That is the pipeline that goes from Russia through Denmark into Germany. And then I was thinking, okay, do Germans want to pay $5 for their gas or $8 from buying LNG from the States? Germans, when it comes to price, they prefer the lower <laughs> price. And that has happened. And then what would happen if they would say, okay, we have to abolish the Nord Stream. It was a $9 billion investment by Shell, by Gazprom, by all the big players. So, okay, if that would happen, Gazprom would lose $2 billion, which is, again, not a tragedy. Plus, if that would happen, prices would go up. So that would be uh, recovered on that uh, side. So also, if you look at Gazprom from a management perspective, they said they will invest and I always say, if you own Gazprom, you don't own it. You just hold 50%. I always say 50% of the profits and everything, immediately give it to Mother Russia or the oligarchs or whatever. And you are happy if you get the other 50%. So it's all about valuation and it's natural gas, which I like a little bit more than oil because demand for natural gas is likely to stay, grow, keep growing, and then stay flatter than what is the situation with oil, especially with what's going on in China, with the new pipelines there. So longer term, but always it's always important to carefully watch it and cover it and a little bit feel what's going on. And then, of course, if you find something else somewhere that's better, then it's easy to switch. Never get attached to a stock too much. If it's not the amazing business, the one that has really the potential to become 100 to one. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think we have two questions here that are sort of striking along the same theme. So it says, in the most recent Berkshire uh, Hathaway annual shareholders meeting, Warren Buffett demonstrated that none of the 20 largest companies in the world 30 years ago are still in the top 20 today. How many of today's 20 largest companies do you expect to be in the top 20 30 years from now? And I think that's sort of what it's getting at is, do you believe that it is getting easier for companies to maintain their moats as a result of global scale or harder for companies to maintain their moats because of the rapid pace of technological change? I think it's always, always the same. And I think in 20 years, there will be different companies as the dominating uh, factors because we have absolutely no idea about what will the future bring. That's impossible to know. So there was a really good quote in this book saying that we have, especially analysts and we that talk about markets, we have 
an incredible ability to explain what's going on now, but really, really absolutely zero ability to forecast what will happen in the future. If I would had said two years ago that the budget deficit will be 50%, everyone would be calling me crazy. And here we are now with money printing everywhere. So interest rates at zero and low inflation on top of that. So it's really, really hard to predict with the companies. You are all smart students there and you see Apple, you see that they make 80 billion and okay, I'm going to study hard. I want to go into that business. (laughs) <laughs> because there is where the money is. So all the smartest brain of, brains of the world, maybe you even go to work for Apple for a few years, learn, and then you go start your own company. And today you don't even have to start it in a garage. Today, if you have a good idea, you will get 100 million of funding. If you have a good idea and a product, you will get a billion of funding. So it's really, really highly competitive. And then... That's why I prefer things that I know, okay? And then also unloved industries, I don't know, fertilizers. So you don't want to go into the fertilizer industry. Nobody there at Brown University is saying, oh yes, I'm going to work with shit all my life. No, you're all (laughs) technology, this and that. And so these are, like also Peter Lynch used to say, these are the industries that are not that loved, not that much competition. And especially I like natural modes where no technology or nobody can come and take away my natural modes, which is also interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we had a lot of questions regarding how important is a catalyst that's relatively near-term and uh, tangible, especially if you're investing in companies that may be a relatively smaller market cap, might be less liquid, and are international? That's a very good question. And I can always find catalysts. That's, uh, not, that's not a problem. But then now I've been started start to thinking, okay, I find the catalyst. I don't know. Copper prices are low. Copper prices will go higher. Uh, now, I recently looked at the company like ExxonMobil that makes paints. They said they will make a billion of euros of buybacks. If they do that in 12 months, during, uh, because of the inelastic market hypothesis, the market cap will go up 5 billion. That's about 20%. That's, let's say, a catalyst. Higher dividends are a catalyst, but you can feel that you can, for example, Gazprom that we discussed, they say they said by 2022, we will pay out 50% of net profits in dividends. Then COVID came, it, there was a crash, but they still said, okay, here it is. And when that happens, that's a catalyst. And then the stock price, as the dividend goes up, the stock price goes also up. But here again, I've started, especially lately thinking, Whenever I'm looking at the business, am I looking for the catalyst, the stock that goes up, or am I looking for the business as an owner that I want to own it forever? And here I'm starting, okay, looking more with those businesses, because then you're not looking at just a catalyst, you're looking at quality, management, modes, long-term durable competitive advantages, the runway of the business. 
profitability. And then you're looking, starting, you're starting to look as an owner and not as a stock speculator where you can find catalysts that unlock value. But then you have to sell and find something else and find something else. And then you enter into that game. And that's a very, very difficult game. I would prefer something like Buffett. You buy it once, like he bought Coca-Cola. He gets now a 70% dividend on cost. You reinvest it and you can enjoy your life doing other things. Yeah, that sounds great. Thank you for that insight. And uh, a lot of people want to know your current views on Zinc and your current views on GraphTech. I haven't updated on GraphTech since I wrote my, I don't even know where the stock is. I wrote an analysis and I, uh, it is owned by, I think, Brookfield. Mm-hmm. And they have $2 billion of debt towards them. And I simply saw that this company, the parent company controls the subsidiary. If things get bad, they will simply take it over and you as a shareholder would lose everything, which was too much risk for me. And I don't know how how is the stock price doing? It's going down lately. No? Yeah, it's gone down quite a bit. And I, then I looked, uh, when I remember I looked at all those electric arc furnaces and uh, there was some competition in China and things like that. And that was too complex for me to know. And on zinc, I haven't really looked into the sector because that's not as, diff- as uh, let's say, diversified as copper, less producers, a little bit, some shady producers like Vedanta, where the owner will try to screw you, try, didn't manage, but too much, uh, too complex to really invest there uh, easily, let's say, for the very long term. Even if uh, tech resources was cheap, Good business in a good jurisdiction that gives you exposure to zinc. But I think the stock price is also already much higher yeah. than it was. Yeah. And, and can you just, I'm interested, what happened with, with the owner of that company that you said that tried to screw over the shareholders? How so did you try to do that? The biggest producer of zinc and silver was Vedanta. And if you looked at the fundamentals, it was really, really beautiful. So the re- expected return over the average cycle, I think, was 30% or something when I first bought. And then COVID came, the price went down, and uh, the owner said he will buy out the whole company when okay. the price was down. So that was a perfect setup. And uh, then I simply sold Vedanta, bought another business, did even better. So uh, that was good. But as soon as something I again, my error took too much risk at the beginning. So that's also something interesting. Let's say Warren Buffett says it all. Focus on the five, three to five best businesses. Whenever I focus on the six, seven, or eight, I do something bad. So I'm trying to really concentrate to finding the best possible business there. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. <coughs> and People saw that you had an interesting um, way of doing your DCF that differed a little bit from what the, we see sometimes, which is you use a required rate of investment return rather than a weighted average cost of capital as the discount rate. Can you just go a little bit into why, why you choose to do that? 
because I am a grandmother style investor. So common <laughs> sense, what do I need? I need a return. And also here it says a dollar of income is a dollar of income, no matter where it comes from. So the weighted average cost of capital that looks at the cost of debt and the cost of equity, depending on all the ratios there, where the market tells me what's the, that's uh, Charlie Munger style, would, uh, he would say it's bonkers. <laughs> and I think it's Charlie Munger that said that he never heard an intelligent conversation about weighted average cost of capital. So I'm going to click, close it there. And on my side, I'm just trying to simplify and go to the core. Okay, what do I need? I need, I want a 10% return from the business, be it from earnings, be it from dividends, be it from growth, be it from a combination, be it from buybacks. Okay, 10%. And then if I use 10% for all the businesses that I analyze, then it's easy to compare. If it's too risky, I simply don't invest for it. So I'm not going to change my discount rate because it's too risky. $1 of income, I really need to be zero risk or very low risk as a value investor to invest. So it's really no point in looking at that, those uh, volatilities or things like that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then there are a lot of people that are wondering, what is a typical investment holding period for you and how do you generate stock ideas? All right, so that's really, really good and good question. And how do I generate stock ideas? I simply go through lists. So uh, for example, the Netherlands has very interesting tech businesses, has very, very shrewd global businessmen and they always go into these niches and sectors that are not really seen by the big players and that therefore i said okay let's go into the netherlands i think there are 150 listed companies <clears throat> i'm starting with the a's over the next month or two months i'll look at every company there and then i'll see okay if there is something interesting there i did that Last year, I did it for Austria, about 70 companies. I looked at everyone and I simply, okay, this is interesting. And then let's start digging, let's start reading. And then you, uh, by going through one by one, you find something and then you start seeing, okay, this can't be true. This is too good to be true. Next day, you look again, too good to be true, too good to be true. And then if after a week, it's still too good to be true after a week of digging, then that might be something interesting. And then as a holding period, uh, I'm really to happy to hold forever. So I with intention, okay, I'm going to hold forever. And then depending on what are other opportunities, then I might switch. But if I start, okay, is this something that I would hold forever? Makes things much, much easier. So there is yeah. no defined period. There is no, if this happens, I will sell or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. And then just two questions on your stock, uh, sort of the early section of the stock session process. One is what usually sparks your eye when you see a stock? Is it just a low valuation? Is it a low valuation combined with growth? Is it a low valuation combined with a high return on capital? And then the second part is, so it seems like that, 
that's for, let's say, countries that have like 70 or 150 uh, stocks. What do you do? How do you narrow it down for, let's say, like the U.S. that has like 5,000 stocks? Okay, let me start with the U.S. and then I'll show you an example on the stocks. Absolutely. Um, okay, U.S. has how many? 7,000 stocks. Yep. And now everybody thinks, and this is a fallacy that I also just learned so recently, everybody thinks, okay, I need to find the best of the 7,000. You will never find the best of the 7,000. But what you can do, you can find the best for you to reach your financial goals. That's something you can do. And if you start with 50 of those 50, you will likely find one or two that are interested for you to reach your financial goals. You don't need the best out of 7,000. You need a few good, one or two good per year that you can build a portfolio around and reach your financial goals. It's misleading that you think, okay, I need to find the best out of 7,000. You just need to find the best stock that fits your requirements. And that makes everything much easier. For example, if I just share my screen, so these are the stocks, the A's that I started in the Netherlands. And then you look for companies that are good for you. And this one, Amsterdam Commodities, again, a commodity business that deals with spices and things like that. And that got my attention. They just, uh, they just purchased another trading business. So they did a good deal there. So it's likely that earnings will grow. The management is good. They are in their niche segment because if you want to buy, I don't know, a ton of pepper, you have to call them because you don't know where else to find them. You cannot go to, uh, I don't know, Indonesia to get it yourself. And then you don't know whether what's the quality. So they know those things. It's a niche business. And it's likely that their earnings will continue to grow over the next five to 10 years. They did a similar acquisition 10 years ago. They tripled their earnings over the forward year. So if they triple again their earnings, I don't have to tell you more about that. But that's again something that I found by looking. I looked, I did the same in 2015. And now, five years later, I rechecked the same company. I like it. And then I have put it on my list of covered stocks. And then I'm trying to get to 50 stocks. And then if something is not good, then I put it out. If put something better and constantly find for the best, fight for the best investments, let's say. Yeah, yeah, that sounds really good. And I think we're almost out of time, but let's let's uh, have one last question. And I think we'll just go overall here. What's your advice for student investors who are just getting started? Uh, focus on your income, so make money. <laughs> and then uh, invest that, start learning, and start really thinking, okay, how can I not just make money, buy a stock that will go up, how can I compound over time? If you have, let's say, $2,000, how can I make those 2000 that 10 years down the road are $2,000 per year in dividends? If you can make that, in, and if your focus is on that, then you will find those businesses that will deliver such returns, and then 
10 years down the road, you compound, you compound. And when you are 40, like me, you have millions. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Kerlin. It was a pleasure to have you. It's really it a pleasure honor. to be there. Great. Thank you so much. And uh, have a great day. Thank you so much. Thank you.